Good morning. I'm Julie Steele, and we're going to continue with our series in Romans for the summer. If you would like to follow along with our scripture reading in your Bible, whatever you use, whether that's electronic like my husband does, and he's pretty proud of himself for that at this point in his life, and I'm still old school with the hard copy here, so whatever you use, if you would take that out now to follow along, or you can look at the screens. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version today, Romans 2, uh, verses 1 through 16. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who who practice such things, and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also the Greek, for there is no partiality in God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus was at the point in his ministry where he was starting to make trouble. He was around 30. 30 is my son's age. It's Chris Campbell's age. It's Ben Steele's age. Adam, thank you. Yeah, got to get those right. Um, And he was on his way, actually was in Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacle. And late on the last day of the festival, um, he stood up and started sharing weird things like, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Some in the crowd thought of him as the Messiah at that time, but some were arguing that he was not. The scripture says there was a split in the crowd over him, even then. And some went so far as wanting to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him that day. In any case, the Pharisees were growing more and more upset, except for one man, Nicodemus, who argued in Christ's favor. I wonder what it was like for Nicodemus. Finally, everyone went home that night, but as Christ did on many occasions, he withdrew across a small valley, I've been there, to the Mount of Olives on the other side, where he most likely spent the night praying. Early the next morning, he was back in the temple courts, and a crowd had gathered to hear him teach again. As he was just getting started, John reports that the experts in the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who had been caught committing adultery. They stood her in plain sight right in the midst of the crowd and said, Teacher, this woman was caught red-handed in the act of adultery. Moses in the law gives orders to stone such persons. What do you say? The Bible also says that they were trying to trap him into saying something incriminating so they could arrest him. And I think they were probably just still angry from the day before when he was messing with their minds. I wonder if Jesus was a little aggravated as well because he stooped down and started writing with his finger in the ground, in the dirt. But the Pharisees were obstinate. They kept at him. They badgered him. They, they said, um, Why? What, what, do you, what do you say? Here's this woman. What are you going to do about it? Here's this woman. What are you going to do about it? Over and over again. And I can just see, you know, Christ there kind of mulling that over in his head. What, what do I do? What do I do? And this is what he said. Whoever among you is without sin may be the first one to throw the stone at her. Then he went back to writing in the ground, turned his face away from them. He probably stared him right in the eye and said, you who are without sin, here you go. Hearing that, though, it says they walked away, all of them, one by one, beginning with us old folks, and the women and Jesus were left alone together. So that whole crowd dispersed by that one sentence. So I'm Tim Carl, and I'm not one of the pastors of this church. I think one of the reasons Peter asked me to preach today is that I've, I have just finished five years on the older board and, and I, where I served or, uh, as chairman for the last few years. But I believe my real claim to fame, and, and here is a little bit of Father's Day blended in here. I'm not speaking exactly about Father's Day today, but right here is a little piece, I'll just say. Uh, my real claim to fame is my wife, Carol, the cute, energetic, hit it out of the park interim choir director. <laughs> we have two sons. You might know them. Uh, you probably know Brian for sure. Um, two sons who grew up in this church with Pastor Chris. And Steve Campbell. Steve, you're there, right? Yep, I knew it. Um, and Pastor Julie's two sons, whose, whose names I've gotten uh, backwards today, but Adam and Ben Steele. And at that time in our church history, uh, when they were uh, just coming out of the womb, um, 
Jonathan, Steve, and Ben were, were, were uh, out, out of a stint of 14 boy babies in a row. And we were having a lot of fun in the nursery, you know. I mean, and, and then all the way up through, you know, Sunday school had 14 boys in their rooms at one time, if you can imagine that. Um, Brian is, you know, he sits back there, uh, the slightly bobble-headed drummer. Um, and... Um, <laughs> Sorry, Bren. Uh, he's engaged to Amy. Hi, Amy. Yeah, good. Amy loves it when I pick her out in a crowd. Yes, good. Um, and our son, Jonathan, alias John Joe, uh, at Islander Middle School, Mr. Joe, and uh, at Starbucks, even Paul. Um, but that's a story for another time. Uh, Jonathan is 27. Uh, he's dating Melissa, where we, we have two daughters, kind of almost, uh, in our lives. Uh, Melissa, and she, alias Mel. Yeah, Mel, Mel's back there. That's a story for another time, too. Um, and Melissa actually plays the piano during worship for some of the time. So it's kind of a, some, somewhat a little bit of a family affair around here, I do admit. So, I have three points today. Peter and uh, Julie argue about the number of points, I guess, still, but I'm going to stick with the standard three points. And so if you're writing things down, it's excuses, throwing stones, and praxis, a word I don't know if you've heard before, but I'll talk about it a little bit later. First, excuses. Romans 2 begins with the little phrase, you have no excuse. You have no excuse. And offering excuses reminds me, really, of my mom, um, she, like other moms, would often make real reasonable requests of children, something like, why don't you go clean your room, which really meant go clean your room. And um, after which I would say, but mom, I was hoping to watch cartoons or play outside or something. And um, that was my regular Saturday morning routine, kind of. You know, you had to do the chores and then you could go do your stuff. And when I would say, but mom, she would kind of go, no excuses. And I remember as a junior high and high school teacher kind of employing the same kind of tactic. I would hear, you know, I would be gathering assignments and collecting them, and, and I would go around and see an empty notebook, and somebody would say something like, the dog ate my homework. Um, no kidding, yeah, that's true. And or recently, you know, more recently it would be, oh, my computer crashed. Well, too bad, I would still say, no excuse. I would want that assignment. In Romans chapter 2, Paul preempts our excuse-making by starting with, you have no excuse. Peter talked a little about this idea last week after going through that random list of 20 or so sins at the end of chapter 1 and uh, telling us how important it is to pay, pay attention to the therefore in Scripture, especially when Paul says therefore, you're supposed to find out what it is Therefore, right? And um, basically, Paul was saying, you have therefore no excuse to judge others. It's completely out of line. Uh, it has never really been clearer or simpler, except that Jesus also, in the story um, of the adulteress, said, he who is out without sin cast the first stone. That's pretty clear too, isn't it? Um, everybody left. So it, it, was, uh, it was clear. He also, Jesus, um, 
did that several other times. Pastor Peter also talked about, I don't know, a month or two ago, about Matthew 7, 3. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye when you don't even notice the log in your own eye? Same message, isn't it? Why are you looking at other people when you have your own issues? For we are not bold... Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians also says, For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they say, when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. So don't judge, don't condemn, don't even compare. Why? Well, because that's what Scripture tells us. And we have the Scripture, and therefore we are without excuse. Point two under excuse is back in the preceding chapter. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So we see God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, and therefore we are to be without excuse. This is Paul saying that something similar to actually what the choir is saying. The very first line of the choir, did you catch it today? said, when I gaze into the night skies and see the work of your fingers. What does that mean? Well, how many backpackers or mountain climbers or mountain goers? Um, Yeah, what do you do when you get up there at night? You don't just jump into your tent. In fact, Scott Campbell just laughed because we, together, have done this. We, the, the Tuck and Robin, I would not recommend that hike, but um, with backpacks especially, because it's like kind of all, on all fours, it's just kind of steep. Um, but we went up and uh, laid out on these very warm rocks and while the stars came out. I remember it. And we stare at the sky. Everybody stares at the sky. It's not just Christians who stare at the sky. Everybody does. What's that about? Or a sunrise. You know, heads turn when, when the sun's coming up. People stare at the sunrise or sunset, right? What, 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 how, why? Um, I believe at some basic level, and I would say at some gut instinct core in our lives, we are all tethered to a creator God. Christians and non-Christians alike. We are made in God's image. It's the same for that shock of horror or that lump of nausea that comes when we hear of some human tragedy. Everybody's got it, right? You feel sick when a tornado devastates a community or when a mass murder goes through an elementary school. Everybody, not just Christians, unless they're psychologically uh, deranged in some way. Everybody gets that, wow, that's a terrible thing. You see, there's a God-shaped hole in each of us, a capacity to know from our gut, our core, our essence, that condemning other people, condemning or judging a fellow human being regarding whatever it is, their ethnicity, their gender, their class, their, their religion, their anything, absolute anything, judging them is wrong. We kind of we know that, but we do it anyway. Jesus said it, Paul wrote it, and at some basic level, we all understand it. You see, God is love. God is love. God freely forgives and extends grace to everybody. God demonstrates his own love for us 
that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5.8. There is simply no excuse for saying, don't you know, those people really get on my nerves. Whenever you think of, or it just enters your brain, those people, it's probably time, you know, to check yourself. I think that's, you know, you kind of pick up the stone. Those people, mentally. So every single one of you who judges another is without excuse. That's what the scripture says. Romans 2.1. You condemn yourself when you judge another person because the one who is judging is doing the same things. When we see Jesus' example of a life truly lived for God, when we read and apply scripture to our lives, when we understand that at our deepest core we are all sinners, then when it comes to judging others, we understand that every one of us is without excuse. It's without excuse. So, point two, throwing stones. You know, um, I was a little bit miffed that Bud got two verses and I got 16, just so that you know. You know, What are you supposed to do with 16 verses? And they're all about judgment and all that kind of stuff, so... I'm trying, people, but I'll do my best. So, a stone, I believe, represents the cold, hard truth of God's judgment. I'm not saying um, there won't be judgment by my remarks today. I'm saying that it's really none of our business. That's what I'm saying. We should not pass judgment on another. Only God can do that impartially and based on the truth. We don't have the ability to judge based on the capital T truth of the matter. Here it's what it says. We know that God's judgment agrees with the truth, and his judgment is against those who do these kinds of things. If you judge those who do these kinds of things while you do the same things yourself, think about this. Do you believe that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you have contempt for the riches of God's generosity, tolerance, and patience? Don't you realize that God's kindness is supposed to lead you to change your heart and your life? You are storing up wrath for yourself because of your stubbornness of your heart that refuses to change. God's just judgment will be revealed on the day of wrath. Kind of scary. I believe in these verses, Paul helps us unpack the stoning question that the Pharisees asked Jesus. But you might say, didn't the Pharisees know the truth about adultery? They had the truth. They had the law. The formula for what to do about adultery is written in Scripture. Look at John 8 again. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone women like this. What do you say? They said this to test him because they wanted a, person, wanted a reason to bring an accusation against him. So we can't really deal with their bad intentions, bad intentions for sure, but that's, that's a different sermon. But we can deal, and we must deal with the law of Moses, I think. Leviticus 20.10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, for instance, with the wife of his neighbor, it gives that example, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. But we're no longer under the law, Right? When Jesus came to earth, he abolished the law, right? Eh, wrong. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. So doesn't it follow that Jesus should follow the law? 
I mean, it's a rule. I'm not a rule follower, but Carol is. You know, drag the woman outside the city walls, bury her up to her chest, and have everyone pick up a stone and throw it at her head until she's dead. That's what they did. So, you know, what's Jesus to do? The Pharisees knew it was law. He knew it was law. What is this, you know? So, I'm going to take a little bit of a road trip through this word knowing, because I think that is key to this situation. One of my early mentors, a great person, Dr. Al Green, one of the founders of Bellevue Christian School, actually attended this church for many years ago. He taught Sunday school. He taught classes on thinking Christianly and the Christian mind. One of the things I learned from him as one of the essential guiding principles of Bellevue Christian is that knowing is doing. Knowing is doing. Among other examples, he would use 1 John, John, uh, yeah, John 1, 5. This is what it says. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim we have fellowship with him and yet live in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Truth is not merely something you tell. It is not as our court suggests. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth so help you God? Have you ever wondered how every witness responds, I do, and yet every testimony has a slightly different twist? Yes, there are, they are bearing witness to what happened from their unique perspective, but they, do they express the actual truth about what happened? Research studies have, undertake, have been undertaken in which people are questioned after seeing the exact same common event, and every testimony is different in key elements of color or size or gender or length of hair or whatever. And it's not because people are trying to be deceptive, I don't believe, but I believe it helps to emphasize that we're not getting the full notion of truth and of knowing. Truth is something you do. Truth is a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that's not just a friendly little saying. It's the way the world is. Here's a quick example. Alan Vizzuti. You, some of you know Alan Vizzuti, probably. He's a, he lives on the island. He's a world-renowned trumpet player. Um, he used to attend this church, and he's performed here a few times. I still remember the sound of the trumpet echoing in the park across the street. It was Bud's last Sunday as, as senior pastor, and we were celebrating his ministry in Mercerdale Park. Alan performed Amazing Grace solo, nobody else. And he started, I, I don't play trumpet, he started as low as a trumpet could go. And then he went up a fifth and played it again. Next verse. And then he went up a fifth and played it again. And then he went up a fifth and played it again. And then he went up a fifth until he was screaming better than, you know, any of the jazz greats, uh, Dizzy Gillespie, Mal Davis, whatever, Wynton Marcellus. He was awesome. Amazing Grace was truly amazing at that point in time. Alan knows the trumpet. How does Alan know the trumpet? Well, you have to juxtapose that knowing in that way to my knowledge of the trumpet. Just happened to pick one up. We have instruments all over our house. 
And uh, so I know about the trumpet a little bit. You know, I know it's not a euphonium. Euphoniums go up and down like this or a tuba. Tubas are really big. Um, and it's not a French horn. The bells go back in French horns, so I know it's that, that. And trombones, not that either because they have a lot longer one of these, so, you know. Um, mouthpiece goes here. I know that about the trumpet. They have three valves, you know, um, and I, you know, I'm a clarinetist, so I like lots of keys. I don't know how they get all those notes out of three valves. Um, it's got a tuning slide. It's got quite a few slides. I don't know what they all do. Um, you know, we, we took this out the other night, and we all blew in it, and I'm, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but um, but we, got it, we broke it, too. I mean, I took the valves out. <laughs> so Carol came home. It was at the very last day of school. And we were blasting these trumpets, and she was just, you know, she was reminded of the first day of school. She said, this is bad. I just got finished with the school year, and here I am back in September again, because she was hearing these, these amazing trumpet sounds. So I know the trumpet, right? I mean, I know it. Well, I know about the trumpet a little bit. Alan knows the trumpet. Why does he know the trumpet? How does he know the trumpet? Well, Alan knows the trumpet because he spent time with the trumpet. He's done the trumpet hour and after hour practice. Still does, hour after hour. That's right. You don't ever stop. You keep practicing. The truth about the sound of a trumpet is in the playing, in the doing of the trumpet. God's judgment is based on this kind of doing the truth. God can't help but operate under the truth. He can't help himself when he does the truth. It's at God's core to do the truth. We can't judge in the same manner as God because sin has upset that original image-bearing quality, upset the balance and the truth quality that is in us, our ability to do the truth. Jesus really is the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And we must leave judgment because of that up to him. That's what the scripture says. Keep this knowing is doing in mind as we go to point three, and you'll be glad to know this is also application, so you know we're getting there. Okay. Praxis is this point, and praxis is one of my favorite words. Um, I first discovered praxis in reading a book by Paulo Freire called The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Can't go into what that's all about. But since then, I've used it uh, several times in naming things. I named a junior high program at Bellevue Christian School, an alternative junior high program, Praxis. We had Praxis here for a while, Sunday school class. Al and I stood up, Tim and Al, you know, the Tim and Al show. Um, tool time. Tool time in Sunday school. It was really fun. So remember that 1 John 1, 5, if you call yourself a Christian and by so doing say you have fellowship with God, the key word is live in darkness. So it's saying if you have fellowship but you live in darkness, you lie and do not practice the truth. That's where praxis comes in. Praxis means practice. In fact, if you look at another word, orthopraxy, you know, I'm not such into Greek, but orthopraxy, ortho means Perfect, okay? So orthopraxy is perfect practice. And I'm here to tell you that I don't think it's just practice makes perfect. 
because it takes perfect practice to make perfect. You can practice the wrong notes for a long time, and you're going to play the wrong notes during the performance, but you have, to, you have to do the right notes over and over and over and over again. I think the choir got a little bit of that um, the last few months. So, trying to wrap this around, we have to do things. We have to practice the truth. Truth is something you do. In a way, it is, you know, just do it. Nike got it right. Um, but pro- and it's in Scripture. This is also in other parts of Scripture. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Or, Matthew seven twenty four. everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. So this is not just one time in Scripture. This is multiple times, and you can find others. Even the passage in Romans, verse 6, God will repay everyone based on their works, on what they do. On the one hand, he will give eternal life to those who look for glory, honor, and immortality based on their patient, good work, not by hearing or just understanding the Bible, not just by hearing but doing. But on the other hand, there will be wrath and anger for those who obey wickedness instead of the truth because they are acting out of selfishness and disobedience. It's all about action. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil for the Jews and also the Greeks. But there will be glory and honor and peace for everyone who does what is good for the Jew first and also the Greek. God doesn't have favorites. I'm not arguing. I'm not arguing that our actions are the basis for our faith, for salvation. That's not what I'm saying. But what we do by our fruit, by our love for one another, by leading with a posture of love, like Peter preached last week, the world will know we are Jesus' disciples. That's how they'll know. No other way in Scripture is it said. They'll know we are Christians by our love. So I don't think the Pharisees really got the knowing part right. Moses' law about adultery and stone-throwing was not correct even in their mind because they weren't living, they weren't acting out of love for either the woman, for sure. They were using the woman as a pawn in their scheme to trap Jesus. That was, that was their love for the woman. And they didn't like Jesus at all. They didn't love him. So they were acting out, a, out, out of a position of a religious leader, a position of control and power. That was their problem, just like Peter preached last week. They were not acting from a, pos- a posture of love. Jesus also called them whitewashed tombs. Whitewashed tombs, not a real happy title. And that's because they were spotless on the outside. Their, their, religion, their religious position was impeccable according to Jewish standards, impeccable. But they were dead on the inside. Their actions proved that their hearts were as hard as stone. How can we turn our hearts toward love instead of toward control? A couple of application points. Some of you know that recently I was diagnosed with atrial fibrillation. I can hardly say that. 
um, AFib, that's when the electrical signal up in the upper chambers of your heart goes haywire, and uh, your, hump is, your, your heart is not really pumping anymore. It's just kind of quivering the top part. That louses up the rhythm in the bottom part, so your, your heart rate is all over the map. It, it's not consistent. It's not so much that that's a heart issue. I mean, it starts there, but they don't get concerned about their heart, your heart. They get concerned about you having a stroke because the blood isn't getting out of the top chambers of your heart. And, um, and so um, if, if a clots begin to form there and if they come out at the wrong time and get to your brain, then there's a real problem. So the remedy for this, the, the initial remedy is uh, medication. They try to get your heart back in, in uh, rhythm with medication, did that, didn't like the medication. I don't like pills so well. I don't take them very well. Um, typical man, I suppose. Um, but the, the next step is to, uh, on a Tuesday, I went into the hospital, uh, and they are concerned because they don't know if I have clots or not, so they put a little tiny ultrasound camera down my esophagus. I, mean, I had to swallow it, but I was kind of asleep. I was out of it. I don't know what happened. And, and uh, look around, you know, look around behind your heart with the ultrasound camera. No clots. So then they go clear. And uh, you kind of go. And anyway, you're, my heart got jammed back into rhythm, essentially. And I feel great. Life is good. Um, God is good. Um, but I will say that that whole heart thing... Um, reminded me of my mortality a little bit and also made me wonder again about the notion of heart in Scripture. You know that heart is used 725 times in Scripture? That's pretty amazing. The Greek word is cardia, and I, I've read some commentators that say the, the best um, idea is not just thinking of your heart, the little pumper, uh, but this core like, if you're working out your core, you know, it's, it's this part of you. It's the central part of you. In fact, the, uh, the cardia in your body is the, the opening between your esophagus and your stomach. So it's, it's really kind of right down here. It's, it's your center. It's how you are centered. Um, and a couple of examples about that are one is uh, N.T. Wright talked in one of his talks about um, Captain Sullenberger in Flight 1549. He's the guy that uh, um, landed the airplane in the Hudson River, right? And uh, Sully did that kind of on automatic pilot. I mean, not with the, with the plane on automatic pilot, but he went on automatic pilot. He knew what to do. He didn't look in manuals and, you know, get worried or shocked or whatever. He acted from gut instinct to land that airplane in the Hudson River because he had been in the simula simulator over and over and over again, right? He saved people's lives. Another example, Phil Mickelson. It's his birthday. Did you know that today? I, I was looking up to see if he was still in the lead. The, the uh, U.S. Open. I like Phil. Brian likes Phil, I think. Um, and... He is one stroke under um, the, uh, he, he's the leader, one stroke under par. Everybody else is even that's behind him. And uh, I've heard it said that a, a uh, reporter once went up to Phil Nicholson, uh, Mickelson and said, um, wow, that last round, you were really lucky, weren't you? 
And Phil thought about that for a while, and he, and he said, well, I found that the harder I practice, the luckier I get. <laughs> That's what it is. That's how our gut instinct gets shaped. Practice over and over, little by little, bit by bit. We either have our, our heart attuned to God and softened, or we have a hard heart. I know this because there are some examples in my own life. So, here we go, dads. A couple of examples. These are especially for you, but it works for everybody, okay? Several years ago, I noticed that I was leaving the house in the morning without saying much of anything to Carol. I'm not a morning person. I'm more like a morning warthog. <laughs> I don't consider myself human, really, until I've been up for at least an hour and had at least one cup of steamy dark coffee. And now I have to drink decaf because of this hard thing. So, one day the thought came to me later in the day that if something happened to Carol or to me, she would not know that I love her. I mean, I hadn't said it probably since we got married. I don't know. And men, that's not a good idea, by the way. I would not recommend that. Um, so I decided from that day forward, if I was at home every day before I left the house, I would go to her. We'd have a little hug. I'd say, I love you. I'll see you later. And that was going well. We did that. We've done that for, I don't know, how many years now? Um, until, uh, and I know it's, it's kind of grown a gut instinct. We don't think about it anymore. Until a few weeks ago, when we had a huge fight. The biggest fight we've had for several years, actually. And it started with Carol uh, coming... <laughs> wow, that's the biggest laugh and I had no idea. Well, it did start with her. <laughs> I was sleeping almost. She came in at 10.20 and kind of unloaded, kind of dumped this thing. And, and I just, I got angry. I got immediately angry. It wasn't even slow. She, she left and was going to finish something. And I jumped out of bed, pulled on some sweats and, and calmed down by driving my new red Toyota around, you know, up the freeway and back. And so... I calmed myself down a little bit and, and got a little sleepy, you know, I wasn't drinking coffee, so I came back 45 minutes later, and she had fallen asleep and was in bed, so I, I did that too. I was able to do that because I kind of calmed myself down. However, the next morning, I found that I was still quite, uh, quite uh, fine with my anger, evidently, because I was still angry, and I pulled on my sweats again and sort of tried to sneak out of the house. And um, judging her actions of the night before as terribly inappropriate. And condemning her in my mind, you know, saying, that wife, um, she's very unreasonable. And ended up, you know, kind of elevating myself higher and, and really just avoiding the person I love. And it was raining that morning. And I remember Carol so wanted to see me, she, she had that gut instinct, that she came out to the car in the rain as I was pulling out of the driveway. And I was so full of self-pity that I did not respond well to her words, I love you. I was mad. So I drove off. Not good. I'm not, I'm not to the good part, dads. So just so you know that. <laughs> That's coming, okay? That is how hard and cold my heart had grown when I thought about this heart thing over you know, and over this issue. 
And I didn't even know it until later in the day when heartache set in. It just, it's, it started to feel really bad. I had not yet worked out all the baggage and all the root of my anger and all that kind of stuff. But nonetheless, my heart told me, because it was broken, that I missed saying, I love you. I missed the hug. So here, men, listen up as a father. The first way to show love to your kids on Father's Day is to let them see your deep, consistent, until death do us part, love for their mother. Thankfully, Carol and I did work everything out. After some writing and conversation over breakfast and on and on and on, um, things got ironed out. Making the right gut response takes practice over time, and it will lead us to the right thing to do if we do it over and over and other, over again. One final example. Earl Palmer, a preacher at University Presbyterian Church for quite a while, ended a sermon a long time ago, um, and he said this, Dads, it's quantity time, not quality, when it comes to loving your kids. It's quality time, I'm, it's quantity time, not quality time. And I'd always heard it the other way around, you know, spend quality time. Nope, he said, it takes quantity time. I thought he was a little off, but as I thought about it, he's dead right. And it's for the very same reason. You have to spend time over and over and over and over with your kids to shape your gut toward your kids. Now, there is some initial, you know, just draw and love to your kids. But you cannot expect, dads, that if your first love is your career that you can occasionally lavish your kids with expensive gifts and fancy vacations and expect them, expect that to make up for all the missed Little League games or all the missed ballet performances or whatever. It's quantity time, not quality time. And I think about this sermon, I think it's the same thing. Quality or quantity time, quantity time means over and over and over and over again. And your gut begins to get shaped more and more toward the love of your family and the love of your kids. You can't shape the core of your being, the soul of your fatherhood. You can't shape it once in a while. It's a lifetime activity. It takes focus. It takes a lot of time. It takes being involved in your kids' lives, their homework, their soccer games, their music recitals. It even takes being inf involved with their friends, I think. If Paul were here today, I think he, he would say, therefore. And I want to say, therefore. Fathers, don't judge your kids. When it comes to judging others, we all are without excuse. Instead, dads love their mothers as Christ loved the church and spent a lot of time together while you still have the chance. There will be times when we all mess up, but God loves us anyway. How deep is the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Amen.